It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, July 23rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi is one of America's most vaccine-hesitant states. Then, the American Academy of Pediatrics issues new back-to-school guidance. And friends and colleagues pay tribute to First Lady Elise Winter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The daily COVID-19 case count continues to climb in the state. Yesterday, the Department of Health reported over 1,000 new infections. That's the most in months. Nonetheless, Mississippi remains one of the most vaccine-hesitant places in America. As of last week, only about 34% of Mississippians have been inoculated against coronavirus. Paul Anders is a 30-year-old from Jackson. Before he caught COVID earlier this month, he didn't feel motivated to get the vaccine. Make it all the way through 2020 without any type of issues. And halfway through this year, um, any type of issues, I thought, yeah, I thought I was doing the correct preventive measures, taking the correct preventive measures to protect myself. So tell me, how do you think you might have caught it? I believe I may have caught it being at a, at a wedding. And honestly, uh, I'm a, a videographer and being out in the public and I was seeing so many people without masks at this event and I don't know. I just didn't think that I, you, I lost, I lost it. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if that makes sense, but it was just like being around all of these people. Um, no one's wearing a mask. I may have thought, I honestly probably did believe that everything was okay, that I didn't have to run back to the car to grab a mask because of me thinking, Hey, this makes, this is a, this is a wedding. This is people are protecting these people here. Right. That's what you would assume. But no, I believe it it came from my last judgment, me not wearing a mask. And um, I got it at at a wedding, at a gathering. I believe during the 4th of July weekend. So then walk me through the following weeks, days and weeks. Like what all transpired and, and how did you feel? Additionally, because I worked so hard, I didn't feel 
any symptoms other than slight fatigue and body aches. And what I don't know if people know, but I'm a heavy set guy. You know, I'm 30. I probably weigh 360 pounds. Probably weigh, no, but weigh 360 pounds. I'm a big guy. Thank God, no blood pressure issues or things of that nature. So overall, you'll say, step back and say he's healthy. But in the real world of it all, I'm not. And so I began to experience those body aches. And so I thought maybe I needed to stretch a little bit more. And just I started stretching. Like I'm I'm in the middle of the street and stretching, you know, like bending over, trying to touch my toe. Like I feel this pain, but I don't know what it is. And so I'm I'm keeping going and I'm I'm still steady working and I become fatigued, like very fatigued. And then comes the week of my diagnosis and I uh, went to the hospital for uh, respiratory issues and they came back and told me that I had COVID-19. So did they send you home? Like, what what followed the diagnosis? Were you hospitalized for, for days? And then did the symptoms increase? They sent me home with nausea medicine, if anything, right? And this is why I have an issue at this time, because I just want to take the moment to say that, because I'm a black man, Af- black African-American man, young, 30, uh, who was went to the hospital for one thing and found out he had something else. And for them to send me home with just nausea medicine, I felt as if they didn't do their due diligence and making sure that I was, I had a complete workup done as far as before they releasing me back into general population, right? Or at home to myself to take care of myself and to let me believe that I'm going to be okay. It's just nausea, right? Over that weekend, I suffered so much pain and that Monday I was admitted into into the hospital I dehydrated over the weekend I became delirious and I had to go back to the hospital and then once we got there that day they checked in they put you know ran IV fluids on me again this is me going I'm fighting for myself so I drove myself to the hospital this Monday and so I'm getting there, and I'm in there, and the PA is just trying to do a workup. And finally, he asked for a CT, and in the CT, we found out that I had pneumonia in my lobes. And so they again released me, get me to a point where they can release me, and they send me home. Two days later, I find myself back in the hospital, back in the hospital, but this time I didn't go alone. And once I got in there this time, it was everything shifted for me. What were some of the drastic changes, I guess, in in your physical health? I think you talked about not being able to eat as well. Physically, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I couldn't do anything. I've lost over 25 pounds with this. Again, remember, I'm 360 at the beginning. I've lost that, lost over 26 pounds because of me not being able to swallow, me, me not able to breathe or take the taste of water, you know. Um, it became a lot. It was even drinking a cold, something, a, some cold water took my breath away. What was your biggest fear? 
my biggest fear happened Wednesday when I knew I was going to die. I knew I was going to die because I couldn't breathe anymore. I couldn't swallow. I kept throwing up all of the pills. I was throwing up hydrochloric acid. And I could tell my mom when she was taking care of me, she could just see the death circles, dark circles in my eyes where there was no life coming out. And that's when I knew I was, I didn't know what to do at that point. Oh my gosh, how am I getting teared up right now? Wow. But I didn't know what to do at that point because I thought I was over. I I knew that once we go back and they check me in, it's over. And I was terrified. Wow. Um, so... So that was Wednesday. I know we just we just talked about how how dark Wednesday was. So when did you start to feel better? I guess when you start to kind of come out of that. And what did that look like? So around Saturday night, my temperature began to break. Finally, it hit ninety nine point ninety nine point five. I was still not able to eat anything at that time, but I was able to now really sip on water and uh, start hydrating myself again. So what do you say to young Mississippians, you know, who might be hesitant to get the vaccine amid this fourth wave we're experiencing of coronavirus cases? Have your thoughts changed about getting the vaccine and why? My thoughts to, to my generation, to my people who are vaccinated, it, it is simply this. It is of importance. Is that's 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 really it. It's this. It's a protection for you. It's a protection for your family. It's a it's a protection just to have that that peace of mind. Peace of mind. Take the vaccination. Take get vaccinated. Well, Paul Anders of Jackson, thank you so much for sharing your story about your experience with COVID-19. We are certainly happy that you are well and you are recovering and you're here to tell your story. But again, thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you. Coming up, new back to school recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Earlier this week, the American Association of Pediatrics issued new back-to-school guidance in response to the fast-spreading Delta variant of COVID-19. Dr. Anita Henderson chairs the Mississippi chapter of the organization. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. Our recommendation is a universal masking policy for all children and staff, regardless of their immunization status. And that is for several different reasons. Number one, children under the age of 12 are not eligible for vaccination. Number two, A very high percentage of our children 12 and up are unvaccinated right now in Mississippi. And number three, it would just make it much simpler for schools to conduct the normal process of education without having to monitor a vaccination status. 
And so parents might be asking, why should their vaccinated child uh, wear a mask in schools? Right now in Mississippi, only 7% of the children aged 12 to 15 are fully vaccinated. So that means 93% of the children in those classrooms are unvaccinated. So even if your child is vaccinated in school, the majority of the children are not. And so it puts your child at increased risk of contracting coronavirus from a breakthrough um, transmission type situation. So that's why we recommend that universal masking right now, regardless of vaccination status, for protection of your child and for protection of the teachers, staff, and students around them. What are your expectations for school districts in Mississippi? Or do you think they're going to require masks? Every school district, as you know, in Mississippi makes its own rules and um, requirements. There are some school districts that we have heard that will be requiring masks within the school, and we've also heard of others that are not requiring masks, that are having that as an option. We just want school boards and administrators to know that our goal is to get kids in school and keep them there. And the best way to do that is to reduce transmission reduce transmission within the school along with within the community. Because we know if we start having outbreaks in school, our kids are going to have to go virtual again. And that is not what we want. We want them there in person for in-person learning. And we want parents, school boards, to do everything in their power to advocate for our kids so they can be in school. What are we seeing in Mississippi in terms of transmission for the coronavirus in younger uh, younger residents that uh, would have led to this guidance? We really are seeing higher rates of transmission now in the younger population than we have in the past. What is happening is kids have gone to camp this summer. They've gone on youth trips and youth retreats. They've spent a lot of time together, and we're seeing transmission so that when one child gets coronavirus, it is then spreading to their whole family and to their parents. Children do not live in a bubble. They have siblings. They have parents that take care of them. So one case in a child is resulting in multiple cases within the family and within the groups that that child participates in. Do you know if uh, schools are considering uh, going back to distance learning with as we see cases rise? not heard that schools are thinking about that. I know that there are schools who have that as an option. In particular, what is happening now is we have children who may be high risk. They may have a pre-existing condition, diabetes, asthma, sickle cell. They may have kept their child home last year because they were concerned about coronavirus. And they were looking forward to sending them in person now. But with the resurgence, they are having to rethink their options and with recommendations in schools of optional mask usage, they are also having to rethink their options. So universal mask usage would mean that all of our children have the ability to be in person. When it comes to parents that are trying to make the decision to get their uh, child vaccinated, um, they might be looking at this as a, as a disincentive. Um, what would be your messaging to those parents to help them see why it's still important to get their child vaccinated? Getting vaccinated is really going to be the key to getting us out of this pandemic and to having a safe and successful school year. 
um, even if you have been vaccinated and have to wear a mask, you're still going to be more protected. And the other thing that happens if you're vaccinated and two weeks after the second vaccine is that if someone in your classroom gets coronavirus, if someone on a team gets coronavirus, you don't have to quarantine. So that is certainly an incentive to get vaccinated. Also, this fall during the school year, there will be some testing that will be happening in schools, some monitoring and testing to look for the incidents within the school system. And if your child is vaccinated, they would not have to participate in that routine surveillance surveillance type testing. How do you see this guidance protecting not just the students, but also the teachers? I think that um, by having masks for all teachers and all students, it's really going to protect the school community. And it's also going to allow teachers to teach. It will allow them to do the job they were hired to do and the job that they love. Teachers don't want to have to worry about which child is vaccinated and which child is not vaccinated in terms of who gets to wear a mask and who doesn't get to wear a mask. By having a blanket uniform policy, we're treating all children the same and allowing teachers to do the work that they are um, hired to do and the work that they really want to do for their kids. Dr. Anita Henderson is president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Henderson, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, Toby, for having me. Coming up, the legacy of Elise Winter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The family of Elise Winter says they'll hold off on a memorial service for the former First Lady until the threat of COVID-19 subsides. Miss Winter, who died last weekend at the age of 95, was an accomplished humanitarian within Mississippi. Her husband, William Winter, served as the state's governor from 1980 to 1984. Dick Mulpis first met Elise when he worked as a staffer in the governor's office. She was really a very aggressive hard-driving first lady, but when you talked to her, she was the kind of the epitome of a, a southern gentlewoman. She had a very quiet voice, a very graceful demeanor, but while she had that, that graciousness and softness about her, she had a backbone just made of steel, uh, and she was very committed not to superficial causes, but to the basic fundamental issues that affect Mississippi. Mulpas says the First Lady's famous fortitude was evident in the day-to-day business of governance. One of the many attributes of Governor Winter is that he was a mild-mannered man and was not vindictive, and sometimes we on his staff didn't feel like he was pushing an individual hard enough. So we go to Mrs. Winter. She had that backbone. She said, Let's go after them. And so, yes, so we were, as his Governor Winter staff, ever felt like we needed a little push. We went to Miss Winter, and she was strong. She went with him, and she influenced him. And so they were a terrific team. Well, for example, uh, they would have these dinners at the, at the mansion and bring in famous authors or singers, opera singers like Leotine Price or 
writers like like Willie Morris and William Stowart. Anyway, just a whole group of people. And Governor Winter sometimes would invite people who were from the legislature and were opposing us there. And those of us on his staff were opposed to that. And sometimes if it got too bad, we'd go to Miss Winter and she would join with us as allies and those folks would disappear from the invitation list. She she was not just, she came to staff meetings. Uh, she was not just a uh, observer. And Governor Winter's staff, most of us were in our 20s. We thought we knew a lot more than we actually did. There was a lot of testosterone running in, around in that room and big ideas. Uh, but she was a mature, guiding voice to, to help us. So we really felt like Mrs. Winter was one of us on pressing on these major fundamental issues. The major accomplishment of Governor Winter's tenure was the passage of a sweeping education reform bill that raised standards for Mississippi schools and expanded access to early learning. Mulpis recalls the First Lady's particular passion for that project. When the Education Reform Act of 1982 passed, it was passed because Governor Winter, his staff, and his wife traveled all over Mississippi uh, making speeches. I saw her one time be confronted by a number of people that were opposed to what was in that Education Act. One of the components was compulsory school attendance. We had 6,500 children a year in Mississippi who never went to the first grade. She felt that was just absolutely morally wrong and morally bankrupt. And she would speak about that. And I saw people who were opposed to compulsory school attendance, and a lot of them from the segregation academies who thought that for some reason that was going to harm their children. But I never saw her back down. I never saw her knees weaken. I never saw her shy away. She believed what was right. She didn't mind standing up for it. Around the same time, the First Lady became intimately involved with Habitat for Humanity, which was then a fledgling but ambitious nonprofit. Here's Meryl McEwen. For those who don't know, Millard Fuller started Habitat, not Jimmy Carter, but President Carter was coming out of the White House, and he wanted to help his friend, who was an Atlanta businessman. So he called Governor Winter, who they were contemporaries, and Governor Winter said, oh, no, no, you need to talk to my wife, Elise, about this. And so in 1985... That conversation started, and in 1986, which is 35 years ago, uh, the affiliate was established. And it's just amazing that 650 homes later, it's all because Elise Winter had faith. Merrill says that Winter remained deeply engaged with the organization for decades, even up until her final years. For her, even Habitat's smallest achievements were meaningful and personal. Every time, every time I'd call her and tell her about a house or what we were doing, I'd go by and, you know, visit with them. She'd go, I declare, who would have thought it? Who would have thought it? And it just, it was so quintessentially Southern lady speak and quintessentially Elise Winter speak that she was truly amazed at what starting this organization around a mud puddle on a rainy day had turned into. And, you know, it was that quiet determination of hers that if there was a problem or there was some gravitas that the situation uh, called for, I'd, I'd call her. 
And if she needed the governor to make a phone call, he always did. And if she could make a phone call, she did. And it just was that that gentle, genteel way, that steel magnolia part that made us what we are. Elise Winter's family invites donations to Habitat for Humanity, Mississippi Capital Area, in memory of the First Lady. More details in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.